Welcome to the social side of sport, where SPKN's Meg Wilson joins renowned sports sociologist Dr. Jay Coakley in discussions about the relationship between society and sport. Each episode provides a unique perspective as they delve into various sociocultural structures, patterns, and organizations involved in and surrounding sport. They discuss the positive impact sports have on individual people and society as a whole, economically, financially, and socially. The social side of sport provides a quick glimpse into the actions and behavior of sports teams and their players through the eyes of a sociologist. Hello, and welcome back to our discussions with sports sociologist, Dr. Jay Coakley, Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of sport and socialization. It is such an honor to have the opportunity to speak with you again, Jay. Well, this is, this is a, a good experience for me as well, and, and I enjoy talking with you on these sessions. Great. Well, let's just start right off and um, we'll start off slowly with what exactly is socialization and why is it important? Well, yeah, socialization is basically a lifelong learning and development process that occurs as we observe and interact with others. And, and through our interaction with others, we basically learn the frameworks and the perspectives that we use to make sense of the world and to figure out how and where we fit into it. And then where does sport fit in? Well, sport is, uh, is basically a, an important site for socialization experiences. And and, and this is an important point because a lot of people say that sport itself is a source of socialization, but as most of us know, bouncing a ball or, or hitting a tennis ball by itself doesn't mean much. But once you put it in the context of sport where there's coaches and parents and peers and people evaluating us and, and we're learning to assess our own experiences and our skills and so on, once you put it in that kind of a context, then sport becomes a very important site for socialization. Now, are there key factors in becoming involved in the process of staying involved in sports? Well, you know, both becoming and staying involved in sports are tied to our relationships and our socialization experiences. So, you know, our parents in this day and age in the United States, our parents are very important as significant others in the socialization process because they are the ones that give us permission, provide us access and support for our sport experiences when we're, when we're young. And, but as we get older, significant others change and peers, siblings become important, peers become important, coaches and teachers and other people who we meet become important and influence us to either stay in sports or shift to other kinds of activities. And so it's those relationships that are absolutely crucial uh, in trying to understand how people become involved in sport and, and why they stay involved. It's interesting. I, in my personal experience, I started playing tennis because my entire family played tennis. And then, then I got competitive and I kind of burned out. And then now I do it to a little bit to keep fit, but, but also mainly just see my friends and catch up and 
you know, sometimes I wonder if we play more tennis or or talk when we're out there. So it's I can see how that. <laughs> so most people do associate sports with getting fit and a, a good psychological health. In your opinion, is that guaranteed when you play a sport? Well, it's it's certainly not guaranteed, but sports are obviously things that contribute to overall fitness and and good health. But one of the problems uh, that we run into when we talk about this is that all sports are not the same. And when we look at the literature on, on the relationship between physical activity and good health and fitness, we see that there's all sorts of positive benefits. And, you know, it improves our mood, it improves our sleep patterns, it helps us develop strength and coordination. You know, it, it lowers heart disease rates and, and contributes in other ways to, to our well-being. But the research shows that the most or the optimum physical activities for producing good health are rhythmic, non-competitive activities over which we have control and we can regulate our involvement in ways that fit with, with what we're able to do. So, and that's a little bit different than competitive sports. Once you get into competitive sports, then there is a culture that oftentimes leads us to push our limits in ways that that may not increase our fitness or our overall health. Sometimes we learn to play with injuries, which can have long-term kinds of negative effects in our lives. So we have to make a few qualifications when we say that sports participation contributes to fitness and, and overall well-being. Well, and we just spoke in our last episode about the body and how um, you know, some say football players would go into the locker room and get a shot and then go out and play with a broken leg. Certainly that is, is a good example of not, not having a beneficial uh, response to support. Right. And, and I think that, that to the extent that we're aware of these qualifications, you know, if we're coaches or parents, we, we can help our kids or our athletes to to participate in sports that's that's more positive when it comes to our overall fitness and health. So, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that of, of former NFL players, a third of them, when after they retire, have physical impairments that lead them to be classified as at least partially disabled. So that doesn't so, surprise you know, football me. Is, yeah, football is unique, but there are other problems in other sports where uh, where runners uh, continue to run or run too much and get stress fractures and continue to run on those. You know, gymnasts who have stress factor fractures and, and continue to practice and compete, and that leads to long-term problems related to joints and, and arthritis and so on. So, so we have to qualify the, the connection between sport participation and overall fitness and health. Individual sports versus team sports. Yeah, team sports and individual sports are different in that sense. You know, in individual sports, we have a little bit more control over how we train and and even how we compete. But in a team sport, there's there's oftentimes a culture that uh, leads us to 
to engage in certain kinds of actions that may not be good for us because we're interested in being dedicated to the team. And in a sense, being being able to put our bodies on the line for, for our teammates. And that can be a problem. Sometimes relationships with teammates lead us to take risks that we wouldn't normally take. And, but that's, that's related to sport culture as a whole. It's just that in individual sports, we have a little bit more, more control over the decisions that we're making. Well, it's an interesting thing because I know I, playing tennis in individual sport, I know that there was not that drive to go see my friends when I practiced because it was just me and a coach. <laughs> mm-hmm. There was not a lot of, I mean, even in doubles, you, you, you didn't train as a team until much later. You just right. played with whoever you could get, basically. So the relationships are very different as far as socialization goes. And so I put my daughter, actually, I kind of guided her more towards team I mean, she does play tennis, but she's a very good soccer player and she loves soccer, which is great because I thought, well, at least she'll have friends on the team and she'll get some socialization and, and that sort of thing. And I think in the beginning, maybe that that helped. But once she got competitive, the same thing applied. You know, you are competing, even though you're part of a team and learning how to work as a team, you're still very competitive with everyone on your team. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you start out in an individual sport, it's, it's pretty easy for parents and coaches to isolate you from the rest of your life. And, and, and in some cases, uh, that limits the kinds of socialization experiences that we have. And it focuses our identity development on one particular identity. And, and that can be a problem uh, moving forward into adolescence and young adulthood. So we have to be careful if we're in that kind of a pipeline where there's a tendency for experiences to be limited. And, and, and it's difficult to get out of that pipeline in many cases. It's difficult to make the choice because being in there is, is fun. I mean, you know, you're getting a lot of attention, you're developing your skills, you know, it's kind of a, a gilded pipeline that that limits you on the one hand, but provides you with positive experiences on the other, but they're limited experiences. I I remember you telling me a story about uh, an athlete who had never done, I think she was in her 20s, she'd never done a load of laundry. Right, right, yeah, that was a gymnast and a popular gymnast. And yeah, she was so involved in in her gymnastics and her coach and her parents uh, endorsed that that kind of focus in her life. And it really eliminated opportunities to have other kinds of experiences, despite the fact that she was developing her gymnastic skills and having experiences that most other people don't have, but they were limited to a sport setting. And in the long run, that can that can be a problem because you're you're developmentally limited and and your experiences have been limited so when you get to young adulthood or late adolescence you find out that having this one identity to which your identity to which you're committed can be a limiting factor in participating in the rest of life So let's talk about that a little bit. What are some of the major factors involved when an athlete changes a sport or stops their sport after playing and competing for a long period of time? Yeah, well, if 
you know, if they have developed an athlete identity to the exclusion of other identities, if, if their involvement in sport has constricted their overall experiences, relationships, identities, and the development of skills outside of the sport arena, then sport has negative overall consequences for an individual. But if sport actually enables a person to expand their experiences, relationships, and, and skills outside of sport and, and their identities outside of sport, then sport has a, uh, contributes in major ways to their overall development. So, and that's an important thing to, to remember because as parents and as coaches, one of the things we have to do is to make sure that our, that our kids are not isolated in, in this developmental pipeline or that they're focused so much on their sport identity that they don't have opportunities to have other experiences, relationships, and develop other identities. And some parents may think that that's going to take away from their training or their skill development, but I think in all honesty, it would work the opposite direction. They'll be in it longer and enjoy it more. Yeah, you, yeah, that, generally, right? yeah, generally speaking, if, if you have other identities, other interests, Basically, when you're involved in sport, that helps you keep a balance in your life and an emotional balance, especially. So when you have a bad day in sport or you lose an important match or game, you know, it's not the end of the world for you because you have other identities to fall back on, other relationships and experiences that, that let you know who you are in addition to being an athlete. But if you're only an athlete and you haven't developed those other identities, experiences, and relationships, then when you lose, you know, you, you experience emotional lows. When you're successful, you experience emotional highs, and you become really difficult to coach because you're, you're on an emotional roller coaster. And, you know, that, that creates problems too when you reach a point in your life when you're no longer competitive at the level that you want to be and you want to move into the rest of life and you really feel that that you're at a disadvantage because you don't have the same kinds of experiences that other people do. Very true. Well, tell me a little bit more about the retirement process for former athletes and what might be difficult than one would think. Yeah, that well, that's what we've been talking about is related to that transition. So, you know, if your athlete identity is is the central identity in your life, it's the most important identity you've had. If your experiences have been limited for the most part to sport, your relationships have all been in sport, then making that transition into the the rest of your life, the non-sport realms of your life is going to be difficult. And because uh, for a while, you're going to be identityless until you start developing other relationships and experiences that serve as a foundation for the development of new identities. So, you know, it can be difficult. And, and there are people who, when they retire from sport, feel at a real loss because uh, they haven't had the kinds of experiences that would lead them to develop the confidence and the skills that they're going to need to succeed outside of sports. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people think that it's very easy. Oh, so you lose your identity. And, and so you just try to figure out what, what do you enjoy doing and, and do that. It's not as simple as it might seem, especially at the ages when professional athletes in particular are retiring. 
Right. When you're retiring as a 28 year old and start and start to go through some of the same experiences that your age peers went through when they were 16, 17, 18 years old, you're out of sync. And many athletes in that situation, former athletes, feel like they're lost. You know, they feel like they don't have any good anchors in their lives. And they have a difficult time adjusting to a life without sport. Things change. You know, you have to renegotiate your relationships with family members because they were based on your involvement in sport. And now they're going to be based on other kinds of things. And you've got to find out how to do that. Everything is was going in kind of one direction and everything flowed towards that direction in your life. And to have that, I mean, you could say ripped away. A lot of people, you know, retire slowly, but it really is, uh, I can imagine how difficult it is to kind of reinvent yourself. No, and, and one of the other things related to that are the, the resources that we have. So, you know, some people, if they retire from a professional sport where they've been paid well, they don't, they can take some of their time, some time to, to, to adjust because they've got the fi financial wherewithal to do that. And they can also buy training. They can go back to school, uh, you know, so they have the resources to do that without panicking. But you know, for a lot of college athletes who haven't had any kind of financial benefits uh, or other resource benefits associated with their involvement, when they retire, they oftentimes have have problems because uh, they don't know what kind of a job to get. It doesn't fit with what their interests have been. So uh, unless, unless some people take those individuals under their wings and give them some support that enable them to move forward developmentally, they can go through a, a few years of, of having adjustment problems. So you, you mentioned in your book a very distinct difference between participation sports and performance sports. Could you explain why that difference is so important? Yeah, and this this is another thing related to uh, what I said previously. You know, all sports are not the same. And, you know, we have organized competitive sports. We have recreational sports, extreme sports, adventure sports. You know, we can, the list goes on and on. And, and each one of those sports uh, comes with a different culture, with a different set of experiences and relationships and a different set of goals. So, you know, when I was younger and participating in, in elite competitive sports, that, that provided me with a very specific set of experiences and, and orientations. Uh, you know, I was focused on training. I was focused on competitive success. I was focused on, on doing anything I had to do to stay involved. And, and, you know, after I moved away from the elite competitive sports and started to become involved in participation sports, they were very different. You know, the emphasis was on camaraderie. It was on, on the relationships with the people that you were participating with. It was about having fun, not, not striving for competitive success. So those are very different kinds of experiences. And a friend of mine, Mariah Burton Nelson, has talked about the differences between what she called power and performance sports and pleasure and participation sports. And, you know, there's a long list of differences between the experiences in each of those sports. 
then what are the conditions in which sport participation is most likely to have a positive effect on those who play the sport, which we hope will be everyone at some point. Yeah, and 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 again, it's it's if we're able to play sports that that expand our experiences, relationships, and identities, and 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 overall skills, then you know we're in good shape. And uh, and I think that that that's something that coaches should be aware of as well. And uh, for example, if you're a youth sport coach, uh, one of the things you'd want to do is give players on your teams opportunities to engage in some guided play and some informal games so that they can take more control of their experience. They can develop some of their leadership skills rather than just listening to you as a coach and following what you say. And you can provide your players with opportunities to expand their experiences and enrich their overall development. And and this is a you know this is an important thing you could even have opportunities to to meet players from from another team uh, in connection with your games and my granddaughter played rugby and played at the University of Oregon and and you know when I went to her rugby games one of the things that always impressed me was that they would meet their opponents before the game in most cases after the game they would have a meal together and so that would expand their connections and their relationships and and that's that's a little bit different than what happens in a lot of sports I love that. I wish more, I wish more, there was more opportunity to do that. But uh, I think that it's sometimes it gets difficult. You want to, coaches want to keep them on point, on training, on direction for winning at all costs. And then, and unfortunately, socialization is one of those things that gets left behind when that happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and you even, in some cases, define your opponents as enemies that have to be overcome. And, you know, and that's part of the culture in, in certain power and performance sports. Whereas if you do have competition in a, in a pleasure and participation sport, you're competing with other people, not against them. And you know that they're there to provide a challenge for you and, and, and create a, an opportunity to push yourself and to engage in, in pleasurable experiences. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a very different kind of an orientation to competition. And, and by the way, it's one that we learn in our informal games during childhood, because in order to compete, you have to first learn how to cooperate. And because you're, you're getting together and you're creating your own games and without cooperation, that's impossible. You have to make up your own rules, figure out how you're going to enforce those rules and when you're going to make exceptions to them. And all of that is really great learning experiences that don't necessarily come in highly organized adult controlled youth sports. Would you mind explaining just a little bit more about how sports are sites at which ideological messages are communicated to people in society? Yeah, that's a tough one. Let me let me just take a look at a note. <laughs> just off the top of my head. <laughs> so you know softball to you. <laughs> yeah, socialization can occur on a on a community and societal level as well. And and in that sense, uh, sports are 
the sites at which we learn stories uh, to help us make sense of the world and and to decide what's what's important and what's not important. And those stories that we learn in conjunction with sport are generally related to the orientations, frameworks, and ideologies of the people who have created those sports. And in some cases, then the people who who help sustain those sports, the sponsors. And, you know, people don't don't create activities that are not consistent with with their values, with their ideologies. And we know, for example, that that organized competitive sports were the products of of men, of white men in uh, Western Europe and in North America. And they were created at a particular time in the history of, of the United States, for example, when economic expansion was important, when political uh, loyalty was important, when the assimilation of immigrants into American culture was important. So at that time, sports emphasized those kinds of of attitudes and orientations and ideas and beliefs. And because they reflected the orientations of of the people who created the sports and and the schools that sponsored them at that particular time. Well, competition can get very difficult. I, I know just recently a friend of mine went to the Ohio State University in his Michigan sweatshirt and got food thrown at him. So it's not just the athletes that are um, getting these messages. <laughs> No, and those, yeah, that's an interesting example because they're not just learning general stories about, you know, what's important and what's not important uh, at a societal level, but but they're learning some very specific stories about the traditions of a particular institution or organization and, and becoming committed to them and seeing opposing institutions and organizations as in a negative light, you know, as as in most cases, friendly enemies, but <laughs> but in some cases, things can get kind of nasty when you walk into a situation where, you know, people are living by particular stories about who they are and what's important. Well, yeah, and, and it becomes very clear in, in like a Stanford versus Cal football game, if you are wearing red and wander into the Cal section versus wearing blue or yellow and going into the Stanford section. There's a, there's a big difference. So the, the stories and traditions may be a little different on each side. Yeah, for, for sure. And they, and they lead you to even have preferences on colors, <laughs> you know, which is pretty, uh, pretty basic. So, you know, the, the, the other thing that's, that's important here is that the stories that we learn are also related to general values within our culture. So, you know, I remember reading about coaches who were, who were working with Native American kids in, in certain uh, Native American nations and in the Southwest, where the cultural emphasis was on cooperation rather than competition. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we learn in, in American sports is the importance of competition and being competitors and succeeding in, in, in competitive reward structures. And uh, the young people in certain Native American groups are learning the importance of cooperation. And in fact, their games are set up 
so that the goal is to end in a collective tie where everybody reaches a particular goal at a particular point in time. And the emphasis is on cooperation. So those are the stories that they're learning. And one of the coaches who was working with a group of those uh, young Native Americans was, was really frustrated. And he decided, and this is a quote from him, that he had to de-Indianize those Native Americans. He had to uh, get them to reject their cultural orientations and adopt the orientations that made competition in organized sports, the way he defined them, as possible. So, you know, so my point here is that in different societies, you're going to find different stories told in connection with sports. So if you live in a, in a capitalist society where competition is important, the stories are going to emphasize winning competitive success generally, uh, striving hard, achieving, developing status, those kinds of, those are the kinds of stories that we hear. And the heroes in those stories are the people who epitomize those values. But if you're growing up in a socialist society where there's an emphasis on collectivism and the common good and your contributions to the common good, you're going to be hearing totally different stories about what sport is all about. And they're going to frame sport in, in different terms. And you're going to be learning some different kinds of things in your sport involvement. So that's an important kind of a distinction to make. The stories reflect the people who are organizing and controlling and sponsoring the programs. And you know, just imagine if all of our professional sports in the United States now were being sponsored by feminist organizations and companies that are organized around feminist values, rather than corporate values, rather than uh, the values of corporations that are run for the most part by, by white men. You know, you're going to have a different, you would have a different set of stories being told in connection with sports. We wouldn't hear announcers talk about athletes being warriors. You know, we would hear about them uh, being contributors to the team. We wouldn't hear so much about values that glorify a certain form of masculinity. We'd be hearing about other kinds of orientations that people can have. So, you know, it, the, the sports that we see in the United States, especially mediated sports, are definitely influenced by the fact that major profit-oriented corporations are the sponsors and the media organizations are interested in making sure that they please those sponsors so that their narratives during those games are not going to be inconsistent with the values of those corporations. That's interesting that, and, and this is kind of a side note for you and I, I so when you mention a, a socialist society, I right away think of Russia, China, and I think of their athletes and how not very happy they are. <laughs> They're really ground into the, <laughs> into the, you know, if you show any kind of promise for, for let's say gymnastics, you are put in, you know, full steam ahead gymnastics training. And it's not exactly the, the, the picture you just painted. So am I, am I a little off 
on that or is there are you talking about a socialism more like canada you know kind of a, a little bit socialist well, yeah the the you know i think that that first of all we misunderstand a little bit about how how sports and socialist societies have worked in the past. I mean, there there have been definite problems, no doubt about it. But if you look at the training that athletes went through, that training was was much more related to the research that that was done being done on on skill development and success in sports and and oftentimes those athletes engaged in certain kinds of cross training that that uh, lowered injury rates. Whereas in in the United States, for example, right now there's an emphasis on early childhood specialization in a particular sport and sustaining that specialization through childhood and adolescence to the point where injury rates might be higher, uh, you know, happiness might be lower. So, you know, there's, we have to look critically at, at the way sports are being defined and the stories being told in connection with those sports in different kinds of societies. And that's one of the things we do in the sociology of sport is we study those stories and we look at how they play out in the experiences of not just athletes, but spectators as well. I think that's such a good lesson because we, as a nation, are told stories in our, you know, I mean, we would never say that the United States was portraying things in different ways, but I know I learned differently during the Cold War than, than my kids are learning about things. So it, it, there is a little bit of uh, take a second look, you know, use that critical eye to, to question whether it's really what was happening and what's going on. Right, yeah, and we could take a look at, for example, Coca-Cola and McDonald's. You know, why have they in, invested since the 1920s billions of dollars in support for the Olympics and to buy commercial time on Olympic broadcasts? And it's it's not just to sell Coke and fast food. I mean, that's those are important goals. There's no doubt about it. but. It's also to present a lifestyle that's based on consumption, based on competition, and based on the importance of large corporations in our societies so that Coca-Cola and McDonald's know that if they provide us with pleasurable things in our lives, we're going to be less likely to criticize them and uh, less likely to endorse legislation, for example, on limiting sugar and soft right. drinks. So, right. and by the way, Coca-Cola sponsors all sorts of research on the relationship between physical activity and sport and good health. And what they want to do is to make sure that people focus on individual choices related to their physical activity more so when they're concerned about their health and fitness than they focus on the foods that they're eating. So, you know, Coke wants to make yeah. sure that they focus on physical activities being the source of health rather than diet. Because once you start to focus on diet, then Coca-Cola loses. And so does McDonald's. So they're going to sponsor research by physiologists that focus on the relationship between physical activity and good health. Uh, you know what's you know. so amazing about that is that I was talking to a truck driver the other day 
and they said the best cleaning for their engine is Coca-Cola. Right. It's also the best cleaning for your toilet. If you just pour a Coke into gets, your toilet. You know what it gets? It gets the skunk out of a, of, out of a dog's fur, too. Okay. A little bit of Coca-Cola with, with Dawn. Okay. If your dog has been skunked, that's the way to do it. So, well, Coca-Cola doesn't want you talking about those kinds of things. So yeah. they, they make They're not sure. going to be our biggest sponsor, I don't <laughs> they're they're going to make sure that they sponsor activities where we're going to where there's a focus on physical activity. It's so amazing. Let me just hmm. say this. Uh, How about boys know, versus girls and the yeah, and the difference gonna, in the socialization? Right. That's that's ex one of the thing. The, that's the thing that I wanted to talk about right now, is, uh, and this can go back to the earlier one of the earlier questions, but. One of the important things about sports and socialization is the context within which sports occur. So uh, if you're looking at, at for example, low-income uh, minority kids who, who look at occupational uh, opportunities and educational opportunities in their lives and they don't see many, they may focus in on sport as a mobility opportunity in a way that maybe white middle-class kids wouldn't do. So, you know, the context within which we, we participate in sports has an impact on the meanings that we give to our experiences in sport and the way we integrate those meanings into our everyday lives and the decisions that we make in our everyday lives. So oftentimes, uh, girls will look at sport in a little bit different way than boys do. And in some cases, they're, they're encouraged or treated differently by other people. So gender will have an impact. It will mediate the impact of socialization experiences within sport. And, but the same thing goes for social class, race and ethnicity, and ability and disability. So when my granddaughter with cerebral palsy participates in sports, she wears a brace on her left ankle. She's got left side hemiplegia and her left arm doesn't work. But when she participates in a 5K run, and, and I'm participating with her, the meanings that we're giving to that 5K run are very different between her and me and between her and other kids her age who don't have physical impairments that are influencing their running ability. So, you know, she when she finishes the race at a particular time and actually beats other kids her age, that has really significant meaning for her. And those meanings are very different than the next, you know, 12-year-old who crosses the finish line. So, you know, those, we all make sense out of our sport experiences in our own ways. And that's, that's one of the things that mitigates against, you know, a single overall effect related to sport participation is, you know, we're all experiencing sport differently. We're giving our experiences different meanings. We're integrating those meanings into our lives in different ways, depending on our relationships with people. Absolutely. We, I spoke with a female soccer coach who's just incredible, has been in, in the, uh, the Boston College uh, soccer coach for a long time, just retired. But she, was, she has written a book called How to Coach Girls. And one of the things that she always starts out with, it doesn't matter if this is a professional 
woman soccer player or a six-year-old, you always start with like the same to warm up so that they don't have to think about what they're doing and they have a chance to talk, to get, you know, to, to connect with one another. And she really honestly believes not only does it get them to kind of focus a little bit further down the line, but because they get all that out, but it, it gives them a chance to really connect with one another to work better as a team. And I thought that was very interesting. Do you, do you think there are differences like that with, with female and male athletes and, and different keys to, to that type of socialization in competitive athletics? Yeah, I think, well, to the extent that we define gender in very different ways right. for, for boys and girls, then, you know, we're going to end up developing with some different priorities, uh, different kinds of emphases in our lives, different kinds of definitions of reality. And those kinds of things have to be taken into consideration, whether it's related to gender, race and ethnicity, or ability, or national background. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors like that. And in some cases now, there's very little difference between a male and, and female 14-year-old who started at age three in organized sports and has been in organized sports for, you know, 12 months a year for, for those, those 11 years. So then you have a lot of similarities. But if you're, if you're a school coach and you're dealing with boys and girls who have grown up differently in terms of definitions of gender and how they're applied to their lives, yeah, you have to take that into, into account if you want to be a good coach. That's, that's so funny that you say that because when I just read it again from the interview, I was like, this should be just named how to coach. <laughs> because right. I just, I, I thought that, you know, yes, this is definitely, and I think it's because she had always coached girls. And I, it's very funny because if you have young girls and you get a, soccer coach who grew up playing soccer, maybe in South America somewhere or, or uh, Central America, who comes in and is now going and only coached boys and now is going to coach girls. I guarantee you that all the girls will be crying within literally an hour. <laughs> I've just seen it too many times. So I think that she, she has always coached girls. So I don't think it was a, a, a thing where she was saying, you know, this is for one gender. I don't think that played into it at all, but I can totally see where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah. And, and some of the coaches who are working in, in coach education right now uh, and trying to change the way people coach, the, the main thing that they emphasize is that you, your primary job is to get to know your athletes and get to know them as individuals and get to know them as a team. And once you do that, that sets the stage for the kinds of coaching that you're going to do. But uh, you have to acknowledge the people who you're coaching, their characteristics, their orientations, their values, the way they look at things. And if you can do that, and if you know your X's and O's, then you're going to be a good coach. So, but it's a lot of the really good coaches say that the X's and O's are a lot less important, especially the as you're working with older and older athletes, than getting to know your athletes as as people and working with them. I think that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah. 
There's too many coach development. And it's one of the reasons that Dr. G and I had started was that there are so many coach development programs out there and they are so focused on the X's and O's. And you feel a lot of uh, professional and competitive players become coaches because they know the game so well. Mm -hmm. And it quickly, you are able to see who you know, who has the other skills besides being able to play the game well and know the game well. And, and it's, not, it's not a majority of what you're doing. It's communication, yeah. it's knowing your athletes. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, and the former athletes who, be, who are the best coaches are the ones who have focused on their experiences related to other players while they were playing and knowing that, you know, all players are different and they're coming from different backgrounds and that unless you know those kinds of things, you don't know them. And if you don't know them, they're not going to respond to you. So the professional coaches like Steve Kerr and and Greg Popovich and, and others in the NBA, they know that that the most important thing is acknowledging your players as individuals. And once you get to know that and work with them that way, you're going to be much more effective in creating a team. That's very good advice. And um, we hope that everyone goes out there and looks for more information on that to develop their own personal skills. Well, thank you so much for having this discussion with us. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for this discussion on the importance of socialization and sport. If you like this video, please be sure to like, subscribe, and hit the bell to be notified so that you don't miss our next discussion with Dr. Jay Coakley on the important topics in sociology of sport. So I'll look forward that? to that, Meg. So in the meantime, take care. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.